here there's a new handout there in the back so if you haven't picked up the new handout uh, I think the new handout goes to page 48 no 46 46 should be the last page is it 48 okay oh you're right 48 sorry I had a couple pages st sticking together 48 but we're starting on 38 tonight I don't know if we'll do 10 pages tonight we'll, we'll see how we go we're still a little bit ahead of schedule, so if you, have, if you have questions, feel free to jump in and we can discuss stuff. We can slow down if you want to, or we can keep moving along at a pretty good pace. But I'm going to go ahead and uh, get us started with a word of prayer here in a moment. I just, I'm reminding myself by saying this. Uh, Pastor Ken said we're going to try the break a little earlier tonight, so we're going to go for 6.40 tonight instead of 6.45. So we'll break at 6.40 and come back at 6.55. That'll give us a little bit more even time on, on each end of it. So I have to remind myself of that. All right, let's pray together. Father, I'm very grateful that we have your word, that you've spoken to us, that it is a lamp to our feet, a light to our path. We're thankful for your son. We're thankful for the gospel message that the epistle to the Romans especially focuses on. I'm just grateful that you gave us this opportunity to be here tonight and to study together. I pray that you'd help us to all listen carefully to your word, uh, to be willing to submit to what it says, and I pray that we would be better equipped then to share it with others. And we ask for this help in your son's name. Amen. All right, so if you have your Bibles, we're going to jump into Romans chapter 7. We're beginning the top of that chapter. I'll overview the first paragraph, chapter 7, verses 1 through 6. Zooming back and thinking about the big picture, so 5 through 8, chapters 5 through 8 was one big section in Romans. After he explained the problem of sin and the solution that comes through the work of Christ in chapters 1 through 4, uh, now Paul in 5 through 8, if you try to think about you know, what, what do all these chapters have in common, the common theme seems to be the hope of glory, our future glorification, and then he's addressing three potential obstacles on the way. Uh, the first one was death. The last one was sin that we just talked about last week. And now he finally has to uh, address the obstacle of the law. So let me just read a little bit from that opening paragraph there at the top of page 38. So chapter 7 continues Paul's response to the possible obstacles on the path to a believer's glorification. Uh, first law, then, then sin. I'm sorry, first death, then sin, then law. And then quoting a little bit here from Dr. McCune's Systematic Theology, he says there's an apparent parallel between Romans 6 and 7. Romans 6 describes the believer's death to sin as it has freed him from its dominion, but not yet from its continuing presence and attending problems. Romans 7 describes the believer's death to the law, whether Mosaic or God's unchanging moral law but not yet from the accusatory power of the law of God that continues to produce an internal contradiction 
and a frustration over the lack of perfection in his daily life. So I quoted that. That's a, that's a good quote. It's got a lot packed in there. Uh, first of all, you know, there's this parallelism between we died to sin, we've also died to the law. Uh, when Paul talks about us dying, that's a pretty definitive break. I mean, that's a pretty strong way of him saying that you and I are no longer the people that we used to be before we came to Christ. But, you know, we were wrestling through this last time. There is still that thing inside of us that wants to sin, and it truly is us. It's been pretty common in recent years when especially celebrities get up and make apologies for things that they've done wrong. Uh, it's become almost a cliche that they say, well, that really wasn't me. You know, that wasn't the me, real me. That wasn't me. And from a biblical worldview, it was them. <laughs> it is us, right? We don't want to admit that. But it is truly us that sins. Uh, it's not some little devil sitting on our shoulder. It's not some alter ego. It is our, it's our real self, because our real self is still not yet what it will be. We, we were born again, but we are still growing into what we will be. So just like there's still this part of us that sins and sin is attractive to, there's also this part of us that still has issues with God's law. Uh, God's law still convicts us, still causes guilt in our life. And uh, the other thing I like about this quote is that in the middle there, uh, Dr. McCune emphasizes that, you know, when you talk about law, you could be talking specifically about the Mosaic law, or you could just be broadly speaking of God's eternal moral law. So there are some things that have always been right and always have been wrong because of God's unchanging character. It's always wrong to lie. It's always wrong to steal. It's always wrong to be unfaithful to your covenants. Now, there were specific expressions of that moral law for the people of Israel. And I think a lot of the people that Paul is referring to or addressing in, in the church in Rome, they had grown up as practicing Jewish people, practicing the law. So they're probably wondering, well, what does this mean now as a Christian that I, you know, I'm not practicing circumcision, I'm not following the food laws, I'm not having feast days? Or maybe this would have been even more complicated. They personally want to keep doing all three of those things, but they have a Christian brother and sister in the church who doesn't. So remember when he gets to the end of the epistle, that's what he's going to address, the weak brother and the strong brother. So he's driving towards that. But then that just raises a whole set of questions. What about the law? What about our relationship to the law? And he's already hinted at it. So look at chapter 6 and verse 15. Just to remind ourselves, he said there, What then? Shall we sin because we are under the law, but under grace? By no means. So he's already said in verse 15, and then in verse 14, he says we're no longer under the law, but we're under grace. So a couple times in the previous paragraphs, he'd already said you're not underneath the law. He's hinted at it, but now he's going to directly address it. So the way he addresses it is here in verse 1. So let me read chapter 1, verse 1. He says, Do you not know, brothers and sisters, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law has authority over someone only as long as that person lives? So again, I think this law here, you could capitalize with a capital L, 
This is the law of Moses, you know, the, the Ten Commandments and all 612, you know, that's the number that, I've never counted them, but that's the number that you hear, right? 612 commandments in the law of Moses. You're not, you're not no longer under those because you've died, all right? So his main point in this opening paragraph is that when we died with Christ, we were released from any obligation to the Mosaic law. His, his underlying principle here is that death releases you from legal commitments. Uh, as a general rule, nobody shows up with a contract at your funeral and tries to negotiate with you or tell you that you're in breach of it or whatever. If you're dead, you're exempt. If you're, if you're dead, you're no longer bound by those legal commitments. So that's his point there in verse 1. And he illustrates it uh, in verses 2 through 3. If a married woman's husband dies, she's free to marry another man without it being considered adultery. The death severs the legal connection between the woman and her first husband. So that's what he says in verses 2 through 3. For example, by law, a married woman is bound to her husband as long as he is alive, but if her husband dies, she's released from the law that binds her to him. So then, if she has sexual relations with another man while her husband is still alive, she's called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she's released from that law. It is not an adulteress if she marries another man. Um, so the, the illustration illustrates the fact that we've died with Christ. So similar to the woman and her husband in his illustration, he's saying that you've also died with Christ. Now, the illustrations never work out exactly, right? Because in the illustration, right, you had a spouse who died, and that's freed you. But in the real-life example, it's actually we who died, okay? So he has to do that just to make the illustration work. But the principle still carries over, and that's the principle that death releases you from legal commitments. So the purpose of this death, so why, why did we die? Well, we died so that we could be united with Christ. That's probably why he decided to use a marriage illustration. I've never been really torn up by his choice of illustration, but I know sometimes that it's a little bit of a struggle because in the illustration, you're still alive and your spouse died. In the real life example, you died. But he probably went with the marriage illustration because it, it really captures this idea of union, right? that you're now united to another person. But in the real life example, you and I as Christians, it's Christ that we were united to. We, were, we died to the law, Paul says there in verse 4 at the beginning, for the purpose, he's got the little that there, so that we could be united with Christ. Well, why did we need to be united with Christ? So he has a purpose to his purpose. You've got to love the way he, he structures these sentences sometimes, right? If we, were, if we were back in English class trying to diagram these out, some of them would be complicated. But we died so that we would be united with Christ, and we were united with Christ so that we might bear fruit for God. So that, that old man, that person that we used to be, he or she, they were never going to bear fruit for God. They were never going to be able to live lives that were pleasing to God. And so that person had to die, and when they died, the connection that we had to the law was severed, and now we've been united to someone new. We've been united to Christ, and that allows us 
to bear fruit for God. He goes on to describe this as a, as a realm of flesh. He says in verse 5, For when we were in the realm of the flesh, the sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in us, so that we bore fruit for death. So he seems here to be using realm of flesh for the realm dominated by sin. So flesh all by itself could be a neutral concept. So remember we tried to illustrate this last week when we went back to chapter 1. He introduced this kind of realm or sphere language. There's two circles, there's two spheres that all people live in. We, we entered one of them by birth. Jesus Christ actually entered that one as a descendant of Adam. But then there's another realm that we need to cross over to by the power of the Spirit. And our Lord crossed over to that at his resurrection. That's what Paul said in Romans chapter 1. But everyone except for Christ. So Christ is the exception. He, he's very unique in that he was already a person. And he came into this realm of being a human in a different way. He was born of a virgin. He was at without sin. He had no tendencies towards sin. And he never personally sinned. So for him, living in the realm of the flesh didn't involve sin, but for the rest of us it does. And for the rest of us, living in the realm of being a human, being a descendant of Adam, meant we were sinners. And Paul says here, if you were in the realm of the flesh, and if that's where you had stayed, you never would have been able to produce fruit for God. Instead, he says in verse 5, that you would have produced fruit or works in your life that would have led to death. However, having now been died to the law, so you've got a, a good little but now in verse 6. See the contrast there? But now that we've died, the believer can serve in the new way of the Spirit. In other words, the new way of living that is produced by the Holy Spirit and leads to eternal life. So I think here, quoting from Warren Wearsby's commentary says, To be dead to the law does not mean that we lead lawless lives. It simply means that the motivation and dynamic of our lives does not come from the law. It comes from God's grace through our union with Christ. Now, there are lots of places we could go to in the New Testament that command us to do things. Again, I, I said earlier, you know, some have counted out the commandments in the Old Testament, and they've come to 612 individual commandments. Other people have gone and counted all of the imperatives, all the commands that were given in the New Testament, and it's a greater number. I've never personally done that, but it seems likely to me. You can't read your New Testament carefully and come away with the impression that you and I have nothing that we're supposed to do as followers of Christ. We are still under law. We're under commands but that law no longer is burdensome to us because it comes with the Spirit. It no longer should produce guilt in our life because ultimately we're already considered to have kept the law in Christ. And as he's going to say when we get to chapter 8, verse 1, there's therefore no condemnation for us. So this new life will be the topic of Romans 8. But Paul pauses in the next section to address two possible objections. All right, so turning the page, his first objection has to do with the experience of a person underneath the law. So this is where it gets controversial, because so we'll slow down a little bit. This is one of the familiar passages in Romans that 
good Christians studying the Bible just as carefully as each other come to a fork in the road and go two different ways. So actually, I'm disagreeing here with our textbook. And as if you recall, all of my headings, the ones that have numbers and Roman numerals, those come from the commentary by Doug Moo. So he entitles this section, The History and Experience of Israel Under the Law, which kind of tips his hand towards the view he takes. I'm going to take a different view, but I'm still using his heading. So he believes that Paul is describing himself in this passage in solidarity with Israel. So basically, every time that Paul refers to I throughout this passage, Moo says he is included in that, but he's speaking in solidarity, in solidarity with the rest of his Israelites. All right? it, would be, it would be like a spokesperson speaking for a country or maybe in a labor dispute. You know, one person stands up and they speak for all of the workers. You know, you're all together in solidarity for some purpose, but one person is doing the speaking. That's, that's kind of the idea. I don't take that view, and I'll show you why, but it's a possibility. So while I agree that Paul does describe his condition as an Israelite under the law, I would argue that he does so from a Christian perspective. This interpretation differs from that of Mu who believes that Paul is describing the experience of an unbeliever through verse 25. This difference does not result in a significantly different approach to the, that first paragraph, but it, when we get to the second paragraph, 13 through 25, it is pretty significant. So let's look at the first paragraph. So in verses 7 through 12, Paul wants to accomplish two things in this section. First, he wants to vindicate the law from the charge that it itself is evil. And second, he wants to explain the exact relationship among sin, the law, and death. This makes sense that he has to address it. I know to us sometimes, because we don't really struggle for the most part with Mosaic law, it may seem unnecessary. I think also sometimes Paul's argument seems a little circular, like he keeps coming back to the same things. But it's helpful to just use your imagination a little bit and put yourself in the shoes of both Paul and the people who are getting this letter. Remember, we think that there's this big divide inside the church a bit among Christians who were formerly practicing Judaism and Gentiles who had been saved out of paganism. And now they're trying to live together as brothers and sisters in the church. And one of the big issues is, should we keep the law or not? Right? And that was a great divide. And we can imagine what that might look like in a church. If you had one group that was really gung-ho about keeping all of the dietary laws, the holidays, the other not so much, right? Because they had never kept it. This is why he has to keep going back to it. And if he just says the law is bad or the law is sinful, he's going to pour gasoline on the fire for one group, right? Because there's one group that's already very defensive about the law, right? Because they feel strongly that it's a good thing that should be kept. So this is what he says in verses 7 through 12. He says, What shall we say then? Is the law sinful? Certainly not. Nevertheless, I would not have known what sin was had it not been for the law. For I would not have known what coveting really was if the law had, said, had not said, You shall not covet. But sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, produced in me every kind of coveting. For apart from the law, sin was dead, 
Once I was alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin sprang to life and I died. I found that the very commandment that was intended to bring life actually brought death. For sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, deceived me, and through the commandment put me to death. So then the law is holy, and the commandment is holy, righteous, and good. So he's, he's really emphasizing the fact that the law isn't the problem. The law was holy, it was from God, it was good, it was just being used by an agent. It was being used by sin. It was, it was a tool in sin's hand. Remember Mr. Sin? And Mr. Sin was using it in an evil way. But when he explains this, um, he keeps referring in the first person to someone. There's an I and a me through this first paragraph. And there's at least three different ways that that's been understood. So first of all, who's this I? Some people, that first bullet point suggests that it may be Adam. So maybe this is just Paul, and for rhetorical purposes, he's talking as if he's Adam. That's, that's one possibility. That would make sense of how he could be alive apart from the law and then die. That's, that's one potential argument. But the, you know that doesn't really work with the law part. It does work about the being alive and then dying. But there's not really a sense in which Adam was ever underneath the law of Moses. Uh, Adam was always apart from the law. So number two, uh, some people say it's Paul speaking in solidarity with Israel. And that seems to fit with the Mosaic law, right? Because all Israelites were under the law. However, even if you try to make this work for 7 through 12, when we get to 14 through 25 in a little bit, I don't think it works there at all. And I think the two paragraphs have to be using I in the same way. There's no, there's no indication as you go through this that Paul's switched. So whoever I is, I, I think, is the same person all the way through the section. Does that make sense? So that's why I don't think that's a possibility. So I think it's best to say that Paul's talking about himself. And we got to be honest, that just seems like the most natural way of I, right? If someone's saying I and me, unless he gives you a really good clue that that's not what he's doing, I think your default is that's what he's doing. He's, he's speaking about himself. But that still raises the question, is he speaking about himself in the past when he was a non-believer or is he speaking of himself presently as a believer? That's where the big debate is. But before we get there, let's just finish out talking about the paragraphs. At the bottom of page 39, the law itself was not sin. Instead, it actually had a good purpose to reveal sin. And Paul illustrates this with the 10th commandment against coveting. So, we know this. Sometimes somebody gives us a rule, you know, at work, for example, this happens, and maybe even occasionally in, in government. Um, hopefully it doesn't happen like at a traffic stop where we just, you know, don't know about the rule ahead of time, but it's helpful to know the rule. I mean, sometimes without someone giving you the rule, the law, you're not actually aware of the fact that you're doing something harmful. So Paul says as soon as someone came to him and told him that coveting was wrong, that was actually a good thing. But it also had a bad side to it. Because as soon as he knew that coveting was wrong, he found himself coveting more and more often. We also know that principle from everyday life, right? If you're walking through a park and you see a wet paint sign on a park bench, what do you want to do instinctively, right? We want to touch it. You know, when when I was little and my parents were hiding Christmas presents around the house, which they would occasionally start doing about this time of year, 
they usually just didn't tell me where they were, you know, because it would have been counterproductive if they said, you're not allowed to go into that closet, right? Because as soon as they said to me, you're not allowed to go into that closet, what's the first thing that I would have wanted to do? I wanted to go. That's, that's, the, that's the thing that Paul's talking about. What is that? Well, that's what we talked about last time as our, our sin nature, this, this tendency that we inherited from Adam. We, we got two things from Adam. From Adam, we got guilt. When he sinned, God considered it as if we all sinned. So we're held accountable for Adam's guilt, and it's only Christ's righteousness that can fix that problem. But we also got a second, it's a double whammy, so to speak, that we got from Adam. We also inherit his tendency to sin now. We're we're sinning by nature. There's something attractive to sin. And law doesn't make that better. That's the thing. Law actually makes that worse. The more laws you give a person, the more they just become aware of the fact that they have this sin nature that actually is provoked further in them. So let me read it a little bit more at the bottom of that page. So before receiving, and then skip or flipping to the next page, before receiving this commandment, Paul was blissfully ignorant of his rebellion. So I think there he's using a live and maybe a slightly different sense. He's using it um, something like complacent, self-assurance, and calm. So there was a point in his life before he received that commandment about coveting where he didn't feel guilty about covenant. You know, he was complacent. He felt self-assured. This, this wasn't a problem in his life. However, now having received the commandment, likely at some point during his childhood, he came to realize that the law which had promised eternal life if kept, that's what a passage like Leviticus 18.5 tells us, if you had kept the law, you would have earned eternal life, but the problem is that only one person has ever kept it, and that was our Lord Jesus Christ. For all of the rest of us, getting the law just made us more sinful. It actually led to death. So Paul then concludes, so then, from all of this, that the problem was not with the law. The law was holy, and the commandment was holy, righteous, and good. Any any questions there about that paragraph? What he's trying to say there? So he is going to go on when we get to the end of the book. He is going to clearly indicate which side he takes in the debate in the church. He, he does think one of them is, is, is closer to the truth, but he doesn't want either side to blame the law or think that the law that was given at Mount Sinai through Moses was somehow evil. The problem was with human hearts. All right, let's go to the next paragraph then. So in the next paragraph, Paul's statement that the law was good leads to a possible objection. Okay, So he puts an objection here. In the, in the uh, he's using his words, but he's, he's speaking for somebody else. So verse 12 says, So then, the law is holy, and the commandment is holy, righteous, and good. And then verse 13, Did that which is good then become death to me? So did a good thing cause my death? That's, that's the objection. And so Paul responds to that. And I know what some of you are thinking, because I've thought the same thing. You're, you're thinking, well, Paul, you've kind of already answered this, right? You are, you are hitting this horse to death, right? You keep beating the same drum over and over again. And I think, again, we just have to remember how important this question would have been to those early Christians who had grown up underneath the law. 
It wasn't something that they were just going to lightly give up on. And so he just keeps coming back to these same points. So here his, his response is essentially that it is sin that leads to death. The law was not a direct cause of death. Sin uses the law as an instrument, but sin is the cause of death. The instrument itself is good. The reason why sin has this power is that something inside of us is still inclined toward sin. All right? It'd be like a magnet. It only has power over metal, right? You, the magnet, if you hold it over wood, it does nothing to wood, right? But there's something in metal, right, that's a tra- I'm not, a, I'm not a, a scientist, so I won't say what it is. But there's something in metal, right, that's attracted to a magnet. Somebody can tell me at the break what it is. But it's the same with us and sin, right? Sin can use the law, and it has power over us, because there was something already inside of us that was attracted towards sin itself. You see how that works? So again, Paul's focusing the problem is internal. It's actually something with us. Uh, This is certainly true before our conversion, but it also remains true following our conversion while we wait for our glorification. Even though through union with Christ our bondage to sin is broken, we still return to serve our old master. So remember the illustration from Martin Lloyd-Jones? We're all in our new little walled-off fields, right? But the wall is short. We can still see over the wall We still look at our old life sometimes and we think it's attractive. So Paul illustrates this dilemma in verses 14 through 25 using another long passage with the first person, I. So some people think here Paul's using a hypothetical or a fictional person as a rhetorical device. However, that does not seem, at least to me, uh, there does not seem to be any clear indication that Paul's doing this. Others have argued that Paul's style doesn't uh, actually match the pattern adopted by Greek writers who use this rhetorical device. The intensity of Paul's description and the use of the I do not appear as merely rhetorical or generic, but deeply personal and very experiential. So therefore, if we eliminate it's hypothetical, it's rhetorical, if we're down to it has to be Paul, he's the I, that still creates a fork in the road. Is it I as a believer or is it I as an unbeliever? So let's just kind of illustrate this debate. If we put just two verses up from this passage, the first one's at the top there. This is verse 14. Paul says, We know that the law is spiritual, but I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. All right? So pretend you can't see the second verse. I probably should have done some animations here, right? So just if you were just focusing on that first verse, if that's all Paul said, would you tend to think he's talking about himself as an unbeliever or as a believer? Which do you think? It seems more like an unbeliever. Do you think that's fair? I mean, he's already used slavery-type language in chapter 6 to illustrate our former life. Remember, he says we're no longer under that slave, Mr. Sin. So this potentially would look like he's talking about himself as an unbeliever. But then just forget about that verse if you only had the second verse. In the second verse, verse 22, I mean, that's just you know, a small move of his scroll, right? I can't say verses because he didn't have verses, but just a couple little twists of the scroll, you would have got to verse 22, and he would have said, for in my inner being... 
I delight in God's law. I mean, does that sound like an unbeliever or a believer? That sounds like a believer, right? How does an unbeliever delight in God's law? So that's, that's the problem. You've got individual verses in this paragraph that seem to support two different viewpoints. I think this illustrates something really well. Uh, it illustrates the fact that we're never supposed to just base our teaching on single verses, right? We're not supposed to just pull one verse out of its context and base doctrine on it. We always should think paragraphs, right? Main thoughts are in paragraphs. And whatever we think one paragraph is saying in the Bible, it has to agree with the rest of the Bible. Because even though God led many different men to write the Scripture over a long period of time, they were all still being led by Him, right? They still ultimately have one voice. They can't contradict with each other, all right? So we can't pull verses out of context. It's called proof texting. And whatever we think a paragraph or a book of the Bible is saying, it has to agree with the rest of the Bible, all right? Whatever interpretation we come to in this passage, it's going to have problems. So I'm going to argue for one view because if I didn't, that wouldn't be very interesting, right? If I just gave you two options and then we went away. I'm going to, I'm going to argue for a view, but I admit ahead of time my view has problems, All right? I'm just trying to find the view that has the least problems. So we have to make sure we take all the verses. We can't be like when I get the Ikea furniture at my house, right? And I finish putting it all together and there's some pieces left over that I just pretend I didn't see and I just shove them out of the way. Has anybody else ever had that experience? Or the, you know, it doesn't happen so much with puzzles because puzzles, it's obvious, you know, there's holes. But sometimes we do that with the Bible, right? We, we come up with what we think the hole says and then there's a few verses that don't fit. So we just pretend we didn't see those. And we're not allowed to do that. We have to bring in all the verses and then from all the verses come up with a view that has the fewest problems, but be humble enough to admit that our own view still has problems. All right, so I'm going to try to work through this a little slower than I normally do. One, because it's pretty controversial. And two, I just think it helps us think through how we could handle these in the future. I think we should always look at the responses from the other side, make sure we understand them, and then see if we can respond uh, to their um, arguments. All right, so let's go through the, the different options here, starting at the bottom of page 40. For, first, I'll look at the arguments in favor of the, the non-Christian view. So Paul here, according to this view, he would be talking about who he was before he met the Lord Jesus on the road to Damascus. So one argument for this view is that it was the dominant view of the early Greek church. So as far as we know, uh, this was the majority view. Uh, my quick response to that might be, though, that we don't really have that many writers. So it's, it's, it's a lot of guys, but it probably doesn't represent everybody at that time. Number two, the description I'm... Of, I am of unspiritual. I think there's an of that should be crossed out there. So I am unspiritual. Sold as a slave to sin, or I am of the flesh, sold under sin, as it says in the ESV, seems to contradict the description of the Christian given in chapter 6. In fact, Paul frequently uses phrases that start with under to describe unbelievers. And I give you some of the passages there. So a response to that might be, well, chapter 6 does not necessarily imply that the believer no longer struggles with sin. 
So just because he, he talked about us no longer having sin as our master, even when we were in chapter 6, there was still this thing, this tendency or this nature towards sin. 7.14 can be explained as a vivid way of bringing out the truth that Paul sins, though he does not want to. Furthermore, believers are described as under grace, and Jesus was born under the law. So being under something does not necessarily make you an unbeliever. So just the word under all by itself is not necessarily a negative thing. More importantly, being sold to sin is likely something that happened in the past with continuing results. So that's a grammatical argument. The word that Paul chooses to use, it seems to indicate something that happened to you in the past, but you're still suffering from the results today, which would fit if he's still describing himself today as a Christian. So the way that would work is, as a result of Adam's sin, we were born into the fleshly realm with an inclination towards sin. So, in other words, we were of the flesh. And because of that fact, we were sold to sin with, and I would add, with continuing results. Another argument for the non-Christian view would be that Romans 8.1, it says, Therefore, there is now no condemnation. It seems to switch to the Christian's experience after having described the unsaved man's experience in chapter 7, verses 14 and following. Are you familiar with this argument? Sometimes people say, you know, you got to get out of chapter 7 and get to chapter 8. You know, chapter 7 is the bad news. That's who we used to be as Christians. We need to get to chapter 8, which is the good news. Chapter 8, verse 1 seems to have this big, uh, you know, transition. But my response to that would be verse 25, which is before chapter 8, verse 1, does speak of victory in Christ. But this does not necessarily mean that the struggle in verses 14 through 24 could not be explained as a Christian's experience. So yeah, there's definitely a victory that's coming, but that doesn't mean that we're not already victorious in some sense currently. Some people connect verse 13 with the paragraph that's that we just went through earlier, 7 through 12. If that earlier section speaks of an unbeliever, it appears that verses 14 and following does as well, since verse 14 appears to give the grounds for verse 13. In other words, it's argued that there's no indication that Paul has switched from speaking of unbelievers in verses 7 through 12 to speaking of believers in verses 14 through 25. Both sections are about unbelievers. That'd be the argument. So, you know, before when he was talking about, hey, I was, I was uh, alive, you know, complacent, self-assured, and then all of a sudden the law came that told me coveting was wrong, and then I died. Well, we'd say that, that was describing him you know, before conversion. So then the argument would be, well, then that must carry over. He must still be talking about himself um, before conversion. But my response to that would be the word translated as for in verse 14 it provides grounds for Paul's whole statement in verse 13, and uh, not just part of it. It continues the argument regarding why the law itself is not sin, and for this reason, it could not be translated as in the NIV. So that's, that's a fancy way of saying I think there's a good indication that a break occurs, that he's, he's shifted topics in verse 14. Some people say, well, the Holy Spirit's not mentioned. That This is an argument. There's 
It's just all about I, 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 me, me, me. There's no reference to the Spirit. The Spirit shows up in chapter 8. So that must mean he's talking about himself as a, an unbeliever. Um, but my response to that is the Spirit produces a new nature in the believer. This nature can be de defined as a complex of attributes and includes a desire to obey God's law. So this is what we have up here on the screen, verse 22. For in my inner being... I delight in God's law. Where, where did that come from? It came from the Spirit, I would argue. Um, just because the Spirit is not mentioned doesn't mean that He can't be seen by His work. It's the most common way that the Spirit is referred to in the Scripture is by the, the, the things that He produces, the evidences that He produces in a person's life. The next argument there, um, let me just continue reading a little bit more of that argument. So this old and new nature are not just two persons or two parts of one person. And they're not just two competing tendencies within, within one person. Only the person who has been born again has this new nature. So even though the spirit is not mentioned in this passage, the nature he creates in the believer is described. This is seen in the struggle within Paul. So look at verse 16. In verse 16, he says, And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. I just remembered we got a break here at 640. So my point there is that he has this struggle within himself that he wants to do things that agree with the law, and he knows the law is good. That comes from the Spirit. We'll stop there. We'll pick up the rest of that paragraph when we come back. Let's take our break. Uh, every, every once in a while as a teacher... Every once in a while as a professor or a teacher, you're sitting in your office and you're, type, you're typing some notes up and it just looks, it looks great to you. And then you take those same notes and you start reading them to somebody and you realize this just does not make any sense at all, right? And that's the experience I just had. So that last paragraph I was trying to get through with you guys, it made no sense to me as I was reading through those. So it certainly can't make any sense to you. Somewhere I got lost in my own thoughts there. But the big idea, so let me just back up and try to explain. The big idea, this argument is saying that Paul must be referring to himself as an unbeliever. And one of the arguments is because there's no reference to the Spirit. And I think, I mean, that's a pretty good argument. But my response to that was, well, the Spirit can also be evidenced by what he does, by his, his work. And I do think there are places in this passage where Paul is referring to the fact that he um, has the fruit of the Spirit, if I can use his phrase from Galatians. One of those fruits in our lives is the struggle. So we as Christians are never going to be perfect before, either our, before our glorification, right? Before we're glorified. So whether that comes through death or through the rapture, so because of that, there's always going to be this war or this battle. So I even think this struggle that Paul keeps referring to in his inner person would be another evidence of the Spirit. All right? Let me go through the, the arguments for the Christian view, and then I'll stop and see if you have any questions. All right? So these would be the arguments in favor of seeing Paul in this passage referring to himself as a Christian. I think one of them is that uh, this is also a, another old view. So although it does not appear to be as old as the previous view, it was held by Augustine later in life. He seems to have switched. Luther and Calvin. This was the dominant view among the Reformers. 
and has remained prevalent in the Reformed tradition, which I think means that in most Bible-believing churches today, it's still probably the, the dominant view. I think one of the arguments also is this switch from being uh, in the present tense to the past tense. So just look down at your, your Bibles real quick and look at some of the things that came earlier. So in verse 7, Paul says, I would not have known. He says that a couple of times. Uh, verse 9, he says, I was alive. Uh, verse 10, he says, I found. Um, you know, Verse 11, he's talking about the, the sin deceiving him. And it's again, it's in the past tense. So everything seems to be very past tense. But then when you get to the middle of verse 14, there's a switch. So in our NIV, we've got a semicolon, and then there's that word, but. And then he says, I am unspiritual. And then verse 15, I do not do, or I do not understand what I do. And it just continues all the way through the passage. So I think it very clearly he was talking in the past tense of his former life. Now as he starts to describe his present experience, he uses the present tense. Some would respond that the present tense is being used to create vividness or to describe the ongoing life of the unbeliever. So that would be the response. I'm just not sure that I'm convinced by that. Number three, Paul's description of his pre-conversion life in Philippians 3.6 does not seem to match the struggle and wretchedness described in Romans 7.14-25. So if you're in Philippians 3, 6, it seems like Paul as a Pharisee before his conversion was pretty comfortable and self-assured in his situation. He didn't have this deep struggle where he was convicted by his sin. I think if you'd met Paul the Pharisee, he thought he was okay. Uh, he describes himself there, remember in Philippians, as he was, he was blameless, right? Now he sees himself completely different. He says, all of those things that I used to put my confidence in, now they're like garbage to me, right? Compared to knowing Christ, they're, they're rubbish. But that's not the way he viewed it before he met Jesus on the road to Damascus. A fourth argument, in the flow of the epistle, Paul seems to have already moved past describing the unsaved person. The switch from describing the unbeliever's condition to the believer's new standing is usually placed in chapter 3. It would seem odd, it's argued, and I think it's right, to return here to describing an unsaved person after what's been said in chapters 4 through 6. The response to that would be, well, some would argue that Paul returns to describing his unsaved state because he's addressing the issue of obedience to the law. But again, I think he's addressing it as a Christian's perspective, the Christian's attitude towards obeying the law. Another argument, Paul seems to describe the same kind of conflict within a Christian in Galatians 5.17. So in Galatians 5.17, a passage that everyone agrees is him talking about a current Christian. He says, the flesh desires what is contrary to the spirit. That, that sounds like a struggle, doesn't it? It sounds like a war. I think it sounds like our daily experience, right, as Christians. We are still fighting against sin. Our our human nature, remember, because we were in this group that was born in Adam, all of us there with this human nature, this flesh, except for Jesus Christ, have this tendency to want to sin. And that desire is now contrary to the Spirit. All right, It's not like two sides of us. It's not somebody else. It really is us. 
but within us, ourselves, we have this battle. And you could, I think, also add 1 Corinthians 9, 27 and Philippians 3, 12 through 14. Peter, I think, if you look at 1 Peter 2, 11, I think he also describes a similar struggle. Peter knew a little bit about struggles, didn't he, and failures as a believer. So Peter gets held up as an example in the Gospels of all of us. We see both our successes and our failures in Peter, right? Peter represents us all. So another argument, only a believer, it's argued, could appropriately diagnose the struggle described in verses 14 through 25. An unbeliever's conscience can be bothered by sin, but an unbeliever would not have identified the problem as an inability to keep a law that he loved, right? So you can talk to people, and they, they truly do feel guilty. So everyone was born with a conscience. Remember, we talked about that back in chapter 2. And they can struggle with guilt, and they would even admit that they don't keep laws, whatever those laws are, whether it's their own personal laws and expectations, right? Or whether it's societies, their families, their religions. But they would never properly diagnose the problem as, I can't keep the law, right? They wouldn't say at the same time, the law is good and should be kept, and I'm also incapable of doing it because I'm a, I'm a, a sinner, right? That type of diagnosis is not, is not what we see from unbelievers. So it seems more likely that a believer would say, for in my inner being, I delight in God's law. Some would respond that devout or pious Jews, like the Pharisee Paul, would have delighted in God's law, even though they could not keep it. However, was this really true of their inner being? Right. So did the inner Paul, in his inner being, did he really delight in keeping God's law? It seems that Paul is using inner being or inner man here to refer to his inmost spirit in the center of his personality. He seems to be referring to the same thing when he speaks of serving the law of God with his mind in verse 25. Let me read that for you. So he says in verse 25, he says, Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself in my mind am a slave to God's law, but in my sinful nature a slave to the law of sin. So see how verse 25, it parallels the verse that we have up there at the top. They kind of serve as bookends. So in 14 and 25, he both refers to this slavery that he still feels towards sin. But that's also parallel with the fact that he, in his inner person, is a delighting in God's law. And he actually refers to himself as being a slave to God's law. So he's a slave to God's law at the same time that he still feels an attachment to his old slave master, sin. All right, so my conclusion. I think it's best to conclude that Paul's describing his present experience in verses 14 through 25. In this context, he's addressing the law of Moses, but what he says applies to any believer who's confronted by God's moral law. He knows that God's law is good, but another principle, that's probably how he's using law, is at work within him. So let's look at verse 23. I'll back up. I'll read verse 22. He says, For in my inner being I delight in God's law, but I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. 
This is tricky because I think he actually switches the way he's using law. So he says there, I see another law at work. He's using law as in like the law of gravity, the principle. So the principle, remember we talked about that every time I drop this pencil, unless something really weird happens, it'll always fall, right? We call that the law or principle of gravity. So he, he's saying, I have this, this pull, this principle, this draw that's at work within me, and it's waging war against the principle of my mind and making me a prisoner of the principle of sin at work within me. He sees himself as wretched because he's viewing himself in the light of the holy and spiritual law of God. In that light, even as a believer, indwelling sin is revealed in all its ugly rebellion against God. All right, there is, I want to just address another objection. There is a version of the Christian view of verses 14 through 25, which sees three distinct stages of the Christian life in Romans 7 through 8. So I am arguing for the Christian view, but I don't want to argue for this particular subset of it. So this view would say there's three distinct stages. First of all, there's the pre-conversion state or the natural state, which some would see in verses 5 through 9. Second, there's an immature state, or what sometimes is called a carnal state, where you haven't advanced in your sanctification and you're still struggling with trying to keep God's law. And this stage is sometimes identified with 7, 14 through 25. So some people would say, well, you know, this is Paul talking about a Christian, but he's not talking about a mature Christian. He's talking about a carnal Christian or a fleshly Christian. So you were in step one, unsaved. At your conversion, you went to step two, but now there needs to be another step. So sometimes it'd be a dedication, an altar call, some kind of consecration. There needs to be some another step so that you can get to the third stage. Because as long as you're in that second stage, you're being described here by Paul as being immature, and still struggling with to keep the law. However, the New Testament never describes an additional step after conversion that's necessary to move on from an initial immature stage to a more spiritually advanced stage. I think that's something that we've created. It's not something that's actually in the Bible. Instead, our sanctification is always portrayed as many steps of obedience that we must make daily in an inevitable but not automatic process of becoming more like Christ. So it's inevitable. It's always a hard word for me to say. It's inevitable, but it's not automatic. What's that mean? It means it will happen. All of us who, who were converted, we will advance in our sanctification. As Paul says, he who began a good work in you will complete it on the day of Jesus Christ, right? There's not going to be any of us that don't progress and reach our glorification when our sin is finally removed. But even though it's inevitable, it doesn't mean it's automatic. It doesn't mean that we can just sit back and coast and let it happen. God's actually preordained that the way that we're going to get from A to B, from our conversion to our glorification, is through our own responsible participation through our own steps of obedience, right? And it's going to be continual steps. So it's not going to be one big jump, one big walk down the aisle, one big response to a really passionate evangelistic sermon. 
It's going to be us daily having to say no to sin and yes to righteousness. That's, that's the normal Christian life. So therefore, I'm quoting here from Schreiner's commentary, Paul's not drawing a psychological portrait in which believers defeated by sin find the secret to victory over it. There's no silver bullet here. His point is that the flesh, our native human capacities, have no ability to observe God's commandments. Others may consider Romans 7 the wrong way of sanctification and Romans 6 or possibly Romans 8 the correct way, but none of these seems to be the case. Paul's describing the normal Christian experience due to the two natures within the believer. So his answer is the law is good, it's holy, the problem was always internal, and then as he develops in the rest of that chapter, that internal problem is not fully gone. It will be gone someday. It's inevitable. But you're going to have to, as a Christian, each one of us, you and I, are going to have to make steps of obedience to make that process of sanctification um, come to fruition. Any questions there about chapter 7? Any thoughts or questions? Any of my paragraphs that were nonsensical that I can straighten out now? If not, we can go to chapter 8. All right, let's go to chapter 8 then. So he's now knocked down the argument that death is an obstacle. He's knocked down sin. He's addressed the third obstacle is the law. And he comes full circle back to the hope of glory. He wants to assure us as the readers that we will receive this capacity someday to bring glory to God the way we were originally created to be. So he returns to this in this first section, verses 1 through 13, to the Spirit. So the Spirit is the one who gives us life. He'll refer to that in verse 2. Let me just read those first couple verses for us. He says, therefore. So I think this is, this is drawing an implication of everything that he said in chapters 5 through 7. Now he's drawing it all together. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Why? Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. All right? So you notice how all those obstacles are tied up in there. He refers to the law. He refers to sin. He refers to death. But none of those should make you leave tonight feeling condemned, right? We actually have freedom from all three of those through our union with Christ, and now he's giving credit to the work of the Spirit. It's the Spirit who gives us life. So verses 1 through 4, I'll put up all the different paragraphs. So I just kind of broke this into different sections, kind of the big picture up here on the slide, and then we'll start working through the individual little pieces. Verses 1 through 4, the Spirit, on the basis of Christ's work, overcomes the ruin brought about by Adam. In verse 1, Paul returns to the idea he was developing in verses 1 through 6 of the last chapter. Believers have been set free from their bondage to the law. Therefore, being united with Christ, they do not receive any condemnation for, or curse for failing to keep God's moral law. Before our conversion, sin had an irresistible pull or a power over us. So again, he's using law there in the sense of a, of a principle, of a power. And this law of sin, or this 
principle of sin inevitably would one day lead to eternal death. So if I, if I was teaching kids, I'll do it anyway, right? Because we, we all like science fiction. We like kids' stories. So like in the science fiction movies, there's always like the tractor beam, right? You know, the spaceship is going along and there's a tractor beam that's pulling on it and it's going to pull them in, right? It's eventually going to lead to a destination. That's what Paul's saying here, that, that the law of sin, this principle of sin was powerful over you and it was inevitably going to just drag you all the way to death. That was going to be the ultimate uh, destination. So the only solution to that would be if another more powerful thing came along. If there was some power, more powerful law that could overcome that hold that sin has over you. So going to the bottom of page 44, believers are freed from these two destructive powers, sin and death, by a greater power, the life-giving spirit. So the principle of the spirit, that refers to the the pull that the Spirit has over us, or the power of God's Spirit that enables believers to break free from sin's use of the law for its own deadly purposes and experience eternal life. That's from Thielman's commentary. Again, you know, our, our salvation was never just a ticket to heaven. It was never just a quick transactional thing. We were even just talking about this at the break. It was always a new birth. It was always a regeneration. It always came with the Spirit's power. You know, we never were going to be able to break free of this power all our own. So the Mosaic law could not break this power of sin. It was itself the unwitting tool due to our human nature. But God did break this power through the sending of His Son to be a sin offering for us. So if you look at verse 3, he explains what he means by you were set free from the law of sin and death. So that's how he ends verse 2. And then in verse 3, he's got the little 4 there to explain what he means. He says, for what the law was powerless to do, so I think this would be law with a capital L, what it was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in the flesh. So the law, this, uh, the purpose then for God sending his son to do this work was so that, verse 4, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. So the purpose for God sending his son was so that here the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in the lives of believers. So what does that mean? That the righteous requirement of the law is fulfilled in us. This was the purpose for God sending his son, according to what Paul says here. Some have argued that this is just a reference to our justification. So the righteous requirement is fulfilled in us like in an imputed sense, that we get Christ's record. Yes? Doesn't this kind of verify that we're secure from sins past, present, and future because we're under the law of Christ and no longer under the law of sin and death. Um, yeah, I think what he's trying to get at, though, is, well, what about that guilt that you had from breaking the previous law? So I think Paul would agree that we're still under laws, and he will refer to us being under the law of Christ. Well, I know that. Yeah, under the law of Christ, but not the law of sin and death. Right. But he now he's trying to explain, well, how did... How did that pull that sin and death had over you, how was it broken? 
So maybe if I can phrase it another way, and this kind of answers the debate, is this about our justification or sanctification? The objection could be, well, what if we just keep on sinning, right? Before we inevitably just kept on sinning, right? Is God just going to leave us as sinners? So it's one thing for him to forgive us and credit us with Christ's righteousness. That's what we call our justification. That's a great blessing, right? But what if that's all God did? If God just wiped our slate clean and he credited Jesus' righteousness to our account, but if he just left us underneath the pole of sin, we would just keep sinning, right? So that someday in the new heavens and the new earth, there would be forgiven sinners, but they would still be sinning. You see how that'd be a problem? So there has to be a second fix. We actually need two, two benefits. We needed justification, which was forgiveness and Christ's righteousness credited to us. But we also needed to stop sinning. We needed to actually become holy the way our God is holy. So I think that's where he's getting to. So he, he's transitioned from talking about justification earlier in the letter to now he's actually talking about the work of the Spirit that we normally refer to as our sanctification or our regeneration and it's the process where the Spirit's making us holy. I don't know if that answered your question. No, but Well, it's, what I'm saying is I think it kind of proves that we can't lose our salvation. Right. You know, because it's the law of Christ has superseded the law of sin and death. And there's no sin that it's going to separate us. Mm-hmm. It's going to be the, because we are under Christ now, the law of Christ. Yeah, but I think, he, I think that's all true. But I think in addition, he's also addressing our conscience. Like, so, you know, we, we inevitably will sin, right, as believers. And that sometimes causes us guilt and concerns. Sometimes could even, in, in certain situations, cause us to doubt whether we actually belong to God and whether we actually will end up glorified. So I think what the common thing that Paul keeps doing in this section is keeps pointing back to the Spirit. So it's the presence of the Spirit in your life that gives you as a Christian assurance. Well, how do I know the Spirit's in my life? You know, I don't have a spirit detector. You know, I've never seen him. So Paul is pointing to his work. You know you have the Spirit living inside of you because of the work that he commits. So yeah, it's definitely justification, a removal of the guilt that we had for failing to keep God's moral law. But there also needs to be what the reformers call the, the second benefit, the, the other benefit, which is our the sanctification. Is you said that the law of sin and death, uh-huh. the trajectory is you're going to fail. Yep. But the law of spirit of life is the trajectory you're going to succeed mm-hmm. because of Christ. And through sanctification, he's leading you that way. Yep. I think we're saying the same thing. Maybe yeah, not, but I think we're saying the same thing. <laughs> yeah. yeah I think so. If I can follow up, let me know. But I think I think we're on the same page. Yeah. So, and and I try to. I think this is a helpful way when you're sharing the gospel is just to always think of these two sides to what Jesus has accomplished for us, and we have to remember that we need both of them. Uh, we need justification, which is legal. It's forensic. But we also need regeneration or sanctification, which is experiential. It's actually us becoming more holy. So if you remember at the Reformation, the Reformers said the Catholic Church was combining the two. They were making your justification based on your sanctification. 
if you progressed in your sanctification through the sacraments, then you could be justified. And I think the Reformers, based on their reading of the New Testament, they were correct. They're like, no, those are two separate things. You can't mix them. One doesn't cause the other, but you always get them both. They always come as a package. So how do we know today that we're justified, right? You know, when we struggle with sins and, and lacks of assurance, well, one of the things that assures us is seeing sanctification in our life, because sanctification always comes with justification. That's why I think he's emphasizing the role of the Spirit here. So then, bringing this full circle, when he talks about the righteous requirement of the law being met in us, I don't think he's referring to us being credited with Jesus' obedience. I think here he's specifically referring to the fact that we actually start keeping God's moral law. It's being fulfilled in us. There's things that have always been expected of God's creatures, things that were always right and things that were always wrong, so that would be God's moral law. And we now, because we've been born again and have the Spirit living inside of us, we actually start doing those things, which we never would have done before. So it's actually the, the requirement of the law is being kept in us. So who do not, he says in the beginning, or at the end of verse 4, who do not live according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So then in the next paragraph, verses 5 through 9, he explains, well, why people who walk according to the Spirit fulfill the law. So let me just read verses 5 through 9 for us. He says, those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on what the flesh desires. But those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. So again, I think when you see flesh, you can just substitute in something like the normal human experience, the default way that you and I were born into the world. So if we live by the standards of that world, that sphere that we were born into, well, our inner person, our minds, our hearts, it was just set on doing the things that people in that sphere desire. We had human desires. We had the flesh desires. But on the other hand, if we live in accordance with the Spirit, we have our minds set on what the Spirit desires. The mind governed by the flesh is death, but the mind governed by the Spirit is life and peace. So if we, if we kept on sinning and living according to the principles of this world, it would lead to death. But now if we live in the realm of the Spirit, and we're desiring the things that the Spirit desires, that's not going to lead to death. It's going to lead to life and to peace. You, you see how that could create great assurance for us? That's actually something that we can see happening in our lives that we could point to and say, I never would have lived this way except for the gospel message, except for the change that Jesus Christ made in my life. I, I used to live according to this way, and that was leading to death. Now I live in a realm that's dominated by the Spirit, and when I see the Spirit at work, it leads to life and to peace. All right? Going to the next page, then, page 46. Verses 10 through 11. So here Paul switches to speaking of Christ in the believer, which is a little bit different, right? Because he's talked a lot about us being in certain spaces. So... You've seen me drawing a bunch of circles up here, like I'm Mr. Miyagi doing the wax on, wax off or something, right? So 
There was this circle or this sphere over here that we lived in. Now there's this other one. Sometimes he talks about us being in Christ or in the Spirit, but now he changes the metaphor a little bit. So now instead of us in Christ, it's Christ in us. See how that's a little bit di different? It's a little bit different way of saying it, but I think it's sa the same type of idea. Both of them are, are metaphorical, right? But even though they're a metaphor, that doesn't mean they don't represent something real. Sometimes very real things can be represented by figures of speech or metaphors. And so I think it's essentially the same thing. We've been united with Christ. Paul's not equating the Son with the Spirit. Notice how he switches to speaking of the Spirit of Christ. But all three persons of the Godhead worked together in close association. So let me read verses 10 through 11 for us. He says, But if Christ is in you, then even though your body is subject to death because of sin, so here's that thing that's still inside of us that sins and is going to lead to physical death, the Spirit gives life because of righteousness. And if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of His Spirit who lives in you. So this is very Trinitarian. You see how all three persons of the Godhead are here? You have Christ. You've got Him who raised Christ. It seems to be referring to the Father, right? But then you, you've got the Spirit of Christ, who's also the Spirit of God. And He's also, in verse 11, the Spirit who lives inside of you. So it's interesting. Sometimes when the New Testament describes how our God works, it specifically kind of associates one person with certain activities. But... They're not like us, right? It goes without saying. Our God is not like us. They're not really three separate persons in the way that we have three separate people who could work together. So it's one God in three persons. But if one of those persons is doing something, the other two are also doing it. So the New Testament writers are very comfortable shifting back and forth, talking about all three persons of our one God working together to make our salvation possible. All right, so we can actually see the work of Christ and the work of the Father when we see the work of the Spirit. So we will die, Paul says here, because of sin. And I think he's assuming, you know, if the rapture doesn't come first, but because of Christ's righteousness, we will be raised from the dead by the Spirit who has raised Christ. So unless Christ returns for us, we still are going to die because of our sins. That's still a remnant of the effects of Adam that hasn't been completely erased. And it will be right for us to die, right? Because we really were sinners. We did commit things that are worthy of death. We still commit things that are worthy of death. So physical death won't automatically go away, but there's a resurrection life on the other side of that. So Paul says, even though we will die because of sin, we will live because of the Spirit. Because that, that pull, that, that attraction that the sin and death had over us that would have led to an eternal death has now been broken because of the more powerful work of the Holy Spirit. So let me wrap that up. Verses 12 through 13, in the last two verses of this section, Paul makes an inference from the truths taught in verses 5 through 11. 
And let me quote a little bit from our commentary. And so while Paul can proclaim the life that the Spirit has won for us, Paul now reminds us that we will never experience that life unless we're growing in holiness. We are to use the Spirit to put to death the continuing sinful patterns of behavior from the old life. So he says, therefore, put to death the misdeeds of the body, verse 13. So it's parallel to what he said earlier about so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with. You remember that from chapter 6, verse 6? That's when we had that whole discussion about the nature, this tendency that we still have towards sin. Paul says it's there, but you're not just excused by the fact that it's there. I'm not excused by the fact. Even though it's there, you still have to take responsibility and chipping away at with it. Putting it to death is the way that Paul says it. And putting it to death is actually the mark of a, new, a true Christian. So if you see yourself putting to death the tendencies that you brought into the Christian life from Adam, that's also an evidence of the Spirit. That would also be a mark of a true Christian and would give you assurance of your sanctification. We must do this, he says, to avoid eternal death. He says, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. So if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. I mean, there, so there's no room here for Christian perfectionism, is there? Right? He's assuming that the person who's going to live someday eternally still has misdeeds. <laughs> we still have sin. But he also assumes that you're gradually putting those to death. You're not comfortable with them. You're not willing just to coast through the Christian experience. But there's actually something inside of you that now tells you these are wrong. I have new desires. And I actually now have been given God, given gifts and abilities to put these to death and to get rid of them. All right, I think that's a good place to stop. We'll stop there for tonight at verse 14. And uh, Lord willing, we'll come back next week.